It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. So we are continuing with this um, series of a book entitled The Kingdom, and the byline is From Creation to the Millennium by the author Don Enavolson. Don and I co-authored a book along with two other authors called uh, Kingdom Calling. It was called A Field Manual for Believers, and uh, the unique thing about that was that uh, we had five people contributing Four authors. Um, out of that group of five, we had two Jews, Messianic Jews, and three Gentiles. And um, people, when they hear that, they go, wait, what? Jews and Gentiles working together? Yeah, actually, um, we're part of the same family. We have a mutual father. We have a mutual Messiah who happened to be Jewish. Uh, and we also have a mutual enemy which uh, when you think about that, that should be uh, a motivation both from the father standpoint and the um, mutual enemy standpoint. That should be enough to unite us into one new man uh, per Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. Anyway, so um, down at Volson on this book uh, wrote his own um, uh, synthesis about what he thought the kingdom uh points should be that we are teaching in this day and age. And uh, I wanted to pers- to uh, finish, uh, just do a little wrap-up on the last um, chapter of chapter 19, Pursuit of Power. And I want to just make a couple of points before we move on today, which we're going to go on to the next chapter called uh, Ministering uh, Spirits. And in essence, um, with the pursuit of power uh, about two weeks ago, I think that was the last time we talked about it, um, we basically dealt with the fact that man as a creature, uh, from an authority standpoint, was given virtual plenary authority, virtual complete authority. And I say virtual because there were some limits. But we were given a lot of authority, which is legal permission to uh, have dominion over the earth. That was the original intent, <clears throat> as we could see back in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and, uh, and then we contrasted uh, with the chapters of power and authority and the pursuit of power a uh, contrast study of... Um, Angels, both fallen and um, the loyal angels, that um, basically have a lot of power, way more power than human beings do, but 
they have virtually complete um, power but very little authority. And in order to have the kingdom of God function, you need both sides of the equation. You need legal permission, and we talked about that. With, uh, we see that in Job, that when um, Satan wanted to attack Job, the human being that God had created, that he was, God was bragging about, basically he was God's trophy, uh, Father God was very satisfied with him. He was showing him off, if you will. And uh, the fallen angels didn't like the idea that um, mankind, what they considered to be dust balls, because we were just a handful of dust that Father God breathed into. And uh, next thing you know, he wants us to uh, steward and run this place called Earth. Material realm was not ever made for fallen angels. It was made for humankind. And um, the fallen angels were not happy with that, and they thought pretty much that God had made a mistake, and um, that's what Job is all about. The whole book of Job is the attempt by a fallen angel named Satan to prove that Father God's plan to put man in charge was a dumb idea. And um, the point of the context of what we're talking about with power and authority, um, it's interesting that Satan had residual power, even after his fall uh, from the heavenlies that we see in Isaiah 14 and again in Ezekiel 28. He did retain residual power, uh, but he can't use that power on earth unless and until he has the other part of the equation, the two components. And... Actually, there are more than two, but the two key ones that right now that we're focusing on, he needs authority, which is legal permission to exercise his power. And he knew he wasn't ever going to get that directly from God because he was a fallen angel uh, in rebellion against God. But he also figured out that if he could get legal permission or obtain authority from someone who did receive it legally— then he could use his residual power in a place that was never designed for fallen angels. The earth, the material realm, was never designed for them. They're interlopers. They are invaders. No one invited them in until Genesis chapter 3. And through stealth and deceit, um, our first parents uh, basically invited Satan in by handing over as members of the human race their legal authority, their legal permission to run this place when they agreed with the suggestions against the nature of Father God, against the nature and character of who Father God was and is. When they agreed with those by disobeying God, and believing um, the liar, the father of lies. Um, in essence, Satan got his authority to operate in the material realm. It was handed over to him. So now he could basically act at will with impunity. And that's what's been going on ever since Genesis uh, chapter 3, that things are a mess. 
And so when Yeshua, when Jesus Christ shows up to restore the kingdom, the kingdom is, by the way, not necessarily a place. It's a, it's a form of government, as we see in Isaiah 9. It's the domain of the kingdom. It's God's government, God's order being brought back to a chaotic earth, which is filled with rebellious angels, minions, demons, who influence men, and things have been hell on earth ever since. And our job, when we get commissioned by our Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, when we get our commission papers from him, our job is to literally, and I'm, not, I'm making a pun here, but I'm not, I'm not just being light here, our major job is to kick the hell out of the earth to kick hell or the hell out of this place. And so this is why we're spending so much time into learning how are the rules of engagement supposed to operate. We are not taught this in our churches. We are not taught this in our Messianic Messianic Jewish congregations. God, in this season, is moving back the curtain so that we can look behind the curtain into the unseen world and learn the operational structure. Because if we don't learn how the unseen world operates, when we are, in essence, the focal point on which all of these competitive uh, spiritual kingdoms are vying over. I mean, we're, we're God's trophy, but we're also Satan's target. We have a big bullseye on our back. And so Job is a perfect example of, of how God wants to brag about, about his perfect creation by putting man in charge. And, and Satan says, well, he has to ask permission now. Have you noticed? He has to ask permission of God before he can attack Job. And Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Um. And so I'm wondering sometimes, if you look at the whole Genesis drama, did Job precede that? Because here, authority hasn't been given to Satan yet, and he has to go to God and say, how much can I do to him? And there are always limitations that Father God says, you can do this, but you can't go this far. You can do that, but you can't go the next step. So... Satan was always reined in by limited authority on how he could use his power to bring Job down. And the whole idea of bringing Job down was to prove God was wrong about who should run this place called Earth. So when we wrapped up from this pursuit of power, we were basically saying that Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, his job was to restore something that had been in effect. It was the restoration of God's kingdom. It was the restoration of mankind's authority back to the original design protocols for mankind, which was which were what? Excuse me. We were to be in God's image. And in his likeness, we were to receive downloads, like a vertical download of his likeness into us. 
And then we were to demonstrate that download of likeness of God in a horizontal fashion. So the first reaction or the first uh, function is God doing a vertical download into us to be his representatives, to represent God in a horizontal way by imaging that likeness that had just been deposited in us in the way we think and how our changing our heart from a heart of of stone to a heart of of love to change how we operate in our motivations every part of our old nature had to be redone remade and that's why Yeshua came to do away with the works of the devil that are inside of us. In other words, to clean up all of us as his future temples, future residences, future domiciles where he wants to live. It's all about impartation of the Godhead becoming incarnated within us, not next door to us, but inside of us. And um, that's a that's a heavy load for a lot of people. They just want to die and go to heaven. This this whole thing about imaging and likeness. But this is the kingdom. This is what we don't teach. And so Yeshua's job, Jesus's job, was to restore the kingdom that was originally handed down to as an inheritance from Father God to humankind in Genesis one and Genesis two. And Yeshua came to bring all that back, to restore it, to renew it, to regenerate it, to renovate it. Okay, so the the, um, the last chapter was, we basically, last two chapters was what we said, look, the connection between man's authority and how we can have divine power is to be released through our authority was in essence to realize that there's a bridge between the concept of having legal permission to do something with God on behalf of God, for God, and then to make sure that it gets carried out the way Father God's will wants it. In other words, always having in mind not what we want, but are we executing, are we implementing the Father's will in a particular circumstance or situation with a particular person, what to say to that individual, what to do with that person. Um, is it the right timing? Is it the um, just the right details, all falling into place supernaturally before we act without presumption? Oh, we know what God wants, and then we don't ask. Jesus asked the Father all the time. He was always praying to the Father as to what his will was for the next day. We have to do the same. And uh, we talked about the link between our legal authority and exercising God's power was um, the word or the bridge called obedience. There are a lot of Christians today that want to take shortcuts to the divine power. And we can't skip the bridge of blood between the legal authority to represent Father God in something, to do his will. And in order to see that done in actual power, we have to always 
cross that bridge of obedience. And I think there's a a trend today where uh, many Christians are all excited about the you know, the third great awakening and the next revival, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of talk about power this, power that, but there's very little talk about the obedience factor on how you link legal authority, legal permission over to make sure that power is really divine power, heavenly power, and not the opposite type of power. And that's what we talked about in, in the last chapter of Pursuit of Power. And what I want to do is to basically end with this. To just do miracles or signs and wonders, um, the miraculous for, for Yeshua and for his apostles and for his disciples, the miraculous was never the goal. The miraculous was um, a means for deliverance for, for other people. In other words, these miracles... We're not to raise the status or the eleve, to elevate uh, the re- renown or the recognition of the people who were doing um, the miraculous acts, the signs, the wonders, the miracles. Uh, it was simply a means for deliverance for other people. And we have to keep that in mind. It, it's not about putting on a show. It's about delivering people from captivity of Satan's kingdom, because Satan has power that he exercises over people who give him permission. And when, you, when we give him permission in our thoughts, we give him permission to come into our lives by agreeing with his false suggestions about God. We don't have to obey God. We don't have to do Father God's will. When we buy into that nonsense, we are giving our legal authority to Satan um, even if there's a religious veneer on it. You have to be very cautious about this. Um, power is, is the means of deliverance from those demonic things that prevent people from reflecting God's image to the world. Power is never intended to give status or position to a person or for personal gain for a person. But we have to appreciate that this, this power can be counterfeited. We have to especially be aware of that today. So here's the principle. This is what I wanted to make sure you got last time. Power flows from legal authority, okay? And human beings have great authority, as we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's interesting. Human beings have this authority, whether they're followers of Jesus or not. And this is, we have to realize when power gets perverted, it's because human beings are using their great authority, but they're not submitting to God. The question is not whether a person can do miracles, but whether the miracles that he does do are in obedience to the will of Father God. It is the difference between acting and praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or in essence, using the Lord's name in vain. Here's the ending principle. In the kingdom of God, authority matters way more than power. And obedience matters 
way more than authority. That's how the kingdom works. Our authority that's given to us is greater than power. But whether that power is abusive or not, in other words, is it going to be uh, uh, for a elevation of somebody who's using their authority in a wrong way against God's will, Authority is greater than power, especially when the authority is in obedience to Father God's original designation of giving us authority in the first place. I think that should be clear. I'm hoping that is. And um, one last thing, just realize, I think we talked about this when Saul disobeyed um, Father God about what he was supposed to do with, I think it was uh, King Agag, and um, Samuel had to show up onto the scene and um, basically uh, call Saul out because Saul didn't obey the specific orders of Father God. He was supposed to destroy all of the kingdom of the enemy. I'm not sure if they were Amorites or Midianites. Um, I'll have to look that up. But but uh, the point is Samuel came and called him out. And he said to Saul, he said, what's that bleeding, not bleeding, but bleating like animal noises I hear in the background? And then, and then Saul knew right away he was busted. And Samuel called him out. And uh, right away, Saul comes up with an excuse. Oh, I was saving these animals. I didn't kill them because I was going to use them for sacrifices. And then, and then Samuel responds, hey, obedience to God is better than sacrifice. And, um, and he didn't kill the king that he was supposed to kill either. And uh, Samuel says, the next thing he says is that disobedience to God is as of the sin of witchcraft. So this is in the context of what we're talking about. You can use your you can misuse your a God-given authority to carry out some agenda, some religious agenda you have um you know thinking that you're you're cool with God because you know you're you're using um a religious veneer or a religious cover for the things that you want to do. But if you're enamored with the power and what it brings to you as far as um, more renown, more uh, status, what you're engaging in really is a form of witchcraft because witchcraft is nothing more than the power of disobedience. That's the essence of Satan's kingdom. He has power. And when he has stolen our legal authority and he's, he's using or tricks us into um, working with him, I think we're, we are doing God's will when we're not. And what results is the whole time, maybe Saul thought he was doing God's will by saving those animals and not killing the king. But when Samuel, the prophet, called him out, he said, you know what, what you're doing because you have disobeyed um, you're doing n- nothing different than the practitioners of magic. 
the the workers of craft, which craft, which is disobedience. And so why do I bring that up? So the last part of Pursuit of Power chapter ends with Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, listen to this list. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I remember when I read this for the first time, I thought, boy, these guys, if I were looking from the outside in, I'd say these are the heavy hitters. These are the guys that belong. These are the believers that belong in the Hall of Fame, right? Look how they use power for, to you know, expand God's kingdom. And Jesus, Yeshua wasn't impressed at all with the list that they went on. They're like saying, Lord, Lord, don't you know who we are? And, he's, and it's basically, I think this, um, the end of uh, Luke, it says in Luke chapter 6, it says in 644, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you, then you don't do what I say? And this is a good example of, of um, people being so uh, hoodwinked and deceived into thinking they were doing the will of God. And in the end, Jesus shows up and says, um, separate yourselves from me. I never knew you you workers of lawlessness. So we have to be careful. There's a fine line between doing um, the will of God in an obedience fashion and then shifting over into a religious context and not checking with God and thinking we are doing God's will, and now we are now, in essence, because we're disobeying God's will, even though we're deceived, thinking we are somehow carrying out his will, we're now in in an occultic witchcraft sort of context. This is heavy stuff. Read Matthew 7, 21 through 23 again and ask yourself, is that design or is that is that designated to the believers or the non-believers? We'll see you after the break. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. So we're moving on with the book entitled The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium, and we just did a summary on the last uh, couple of chapters that we did, which was the power and authority chapter and the pursuit of power, and how that can go very, very wrong if we are not walking in the will of God. So um, this chapter, chapter 21, we're going to go over something called ministering spirits. And um, we want to talk about these ministering spirits, um, they're actually referred to, I believe it's in uh, Hebrews, um, yeah, hold on, it's going to talk about these entities called angels, Um, they are also referred to as, if they're fallen angel, they are referred to as demons or uh, minions of Satan. Um, and chapter 21 opens with 
um, some pretty amazing situations <laughs> where angels intervened in um, in the affairs of the apostles, um, basically getting people um, Peter, the apostle, out of jail on two separate occasions, and um, pretty dramatic on how um, that all happened. Um, I'm not going to go into that other than to say you can read about it in Acts um, chapter 12, um, beginning at verse 2. Fascinating story how the angels showed up and basically uh, did the impossible by uh, getting Peter out of his incarcerated um, situation. And um, this angel was sent on an assignment. He was sent to carry out um, a specific uh, job to do. And we find that um, sort of general function mentioned in uh, Hebrews 1.14. Um, in Hebrews 1, chapter 1.14, that talks about the general um, purpose the general function, if you will, of the the loyal angelic world. And the question is asked, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And um, several significant factors in understanding the role of angels are encompassed in this verse. So, Notice the term. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve who? Serve us who are to inherit salvation, we humans. And so um, first we have to recognize that angels are spirits. They're not humans, um, even though they may appear as humans, uh, as we see in, in several instances in the Old Testament and also in the New the angels are therefore not subject to the, to the same physical limitations as human beings. While they can and do often take on a physical experience, we have to appreciate that they are not made of the same material substance as um, people happen to be made of. The, the angels can affect the material world even though they themselves are spiritual. Let me say that again. They can affect the material world even though they themselves are spiritual. Note, for example, the uh, angel who appeared to uh, Gideon in Judges uh, chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, when he appeared to Gideon to receive a sacrifice of uh, meat and unleavened bread, the angel had the appearance of a physical being. Uh, he even touched the sacrifice with a staff that he held in his hand. And what happened? Instantly, fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the bread. And then what happened to the angel? The angel vanished. Um, also, second, uh, the Hebrews uh, refer to all angels, the verse in Hebrews, not just certain types. There are, regardless of what categories might be discerned or what kind of hierarchy of angels function under Hebrews 1.14, um, their function applies to all of them. The rules by which they operate or they function apply 
universally. And uh, we have to appreciate, third, according to um, Hebrews 1.14, their purpose is that of a ministering spirit. And uh, there's a Greek word that the author refers to that I cannot pronounce, uh, but it has the meaning of being engaged uh, as a ministering spirit. The Greek word um, signifies it's as if they are engaged in some sort of special service. In this case, they are specifically um, sent out. They're sent out to serve, or they're sent out to render service. Um, That's another Greek word. That one I can pronounce. It's diakonia, which uh, denotes the kind of service uh, which is performed by a a servant or a slave. And then the last uh, item that we should appreciate out of uh, Hebrews 1 uh, verse 14, chapter 1, verses 14, verse 14, um, is that the service uh, rendered by the angel is performed for the sake of or for the benefit of, of those who inherit salvation. Well, who's going to inherit salvation? Not other angels, certainly fallen angels. We are. In other words, human beings. That's for our sake because we are those who are designated to inherit salvation. So taken as a whole, um, this approach uh, allows a concise profile to be assembled. First of all, all angels are created specifically to be servant spirits for the benefit of human beings. I'll say it again. All angels are created specifically to be servant spirits for the benefit of of human beings. The author indicates that this makes sense within the authority structure of the kingdom of God. For example, the Father is the King. Human beings, acting as the Father's co-regents or uh, co-governors, are reflecting the Father's image. And as such, these human beings have authority To rule where? On the earth. Check out Revelations 5, 9, verse verse 9 and 10 in Revelations 5. Look at uh, Revelations chapter 20. It's all over the place that we are destined to come back to earth to rule and reign with Messiah Jesus. On earth, over the nations, the saved nations. Now, um, so here is this, here's the outline. Here's how the authority structure works. The Father is king, human beings acting as his co-regents or his co-governors reflect the Father's image, having his authority to rule on the earth, the authority that he has given to us. And then on the next level... Angels acting as servants, they use their inherent power to exercise power on behalf of human beings. Okay, so everyone got that. We're not to worship angels. Anytime that ever happened, you notice the angel jumps in there right away and says, don't worship me, I'm a fellow servant. That's what happened to... Um, the Apostle John, right at the end of the book of Revelation, um, 
the angel stops John from from worshiping him. He says, no, 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 uh-uh. We are fellow uh, servants. Worship God. Don't worship angels. Now, the author goes on to say much more could be said about <clears throat> angels, but this overview gives the general idea of how they function. There are lots of examples that he gives um, that... Um, for example, the author says in many cases, or angels are portrayed as agents as agents of power, as in the uh, as in the story of Peter being released from prison before he, he was to be executed. And uh, again, if you want to read that in detail, that's in Acts chapter twelve, starting at verse two. It's an amazing story how Peter got out of prison that night. Um, and uh, and again, the author points out that example in Acts chapter 12, that isn't the first time Peter had been delivered um, from certain death uh, with all with the, all the other apostles. And you can see that in Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 18. But angels, when they show up, uh, are portrayed as agents of power often. Um, in Genesis 19, verse 10, for example, Angels struck the people of Sodom blind when they threatened um, Lot. Um, when an army surrounded Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6, um, he was protected by a host of angels mounted on horses and chariots of fire who struck his enemies also blind Uh, we'll see this uh, again, another Old Testament example, Second Chronicles 32. An angel cut off all of the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the Assyrian army who were sent out against King Hezekiah, forcing the Assyrian king to withdraw. Second Chronicles 32, verse uh, 21, check that one out. Um, the destruction of Jericho that we see in Joshua chapter 5. The author said it was likely at the hands of angels since the Lord's army was present at the time. And I just want to point out, um, uh, I heard a profound teaching um, by my pastor at the time, and he said there had been several archaeological digs around the uh, site of Jericho. And a lot of people assumed that, you know, when the walls fell because... As the, as the Hebrew army marched around, finally the seventh day and um, the seventh time on the seventh day, and then they're going to blow the shofars, blow the trumpets, and shout. And uh, a lot of people speculated what well, maybe was a, a simultaneous earthquake that showed up, and that's what you know caused the um, the walls to lose their foundation and, and to begin to crumble. But the um, but the some of these studies have shown that the from what they have learned in looking at the ruins, it was more of a compression regarding the walls of Jericho from the top downward, as opposed to a shaking of the foundation from the bottom of the wall upward. And uh, I remember 
my pastor, this is like probably 25 years ago, he said, he, God probably showed up because when the, the minute Joshua and the Hebrews obeyed, they had the authority to call the destruction of Jericho into being. But what power did they have as far as the earth context? They had no scaling ladders. They had no battering ram to knock down the gate. They had no catapults to uh, launch fiery dart, uh, fiery uh, oil over the, the side to start fires and then, then inside the, um, the uh, fortress. They just obeyed God, and they marched around silently for the first six days and then seven times on the seventh day and then with a very specific to command the will of God into being. Well, the angels held the power and they were waiting for the people with the authority to pull the trigger to release the power and the trigger to release the, the, uh, the spiritual power to knock that place down was obedience. And they obeyed precisely. They obeyed with precision. Can you imagine what was running in their minds? I mean, because they're thinking, how are we going to you know, attack this place? And they're probably getting made fun of as, as, the, as the people behind the walls are just saying, oh, yeah, what are you, how are you going to knock? How are you going to even come into this place? You have nothing. You have no weapons to really do an assault. But little did they know that when this army of God obeyed him with that sort of precision, then now that required this principle that obedient authority releases divine power. And that's usually in the form of the angelic showing up and doing something that's absolutely inexplicable. And there is none, no other explanation other than this was miraculous. So when I heard that um, explanation, uh, it made a lot of sense to me because uh, the, the, the preacher at the time said, there, there were probably a couple of big angels, maybe, maybe there were four of them, one for each wall, and they were just waiting to see if the Hebrews would obey and when they, f- they finally did the last part of obedience and they blew the shofars, that was the permission to release the spiritual component of the kingdom of God. And down came the walls from the top down. Compression, not earthquake um, shaking a foundation. So I thought that was um, something that would be interesting to consider. So... Um, so the, so the author asks, um, so what's the relationship between authority and power when it comes between the authority of humankind, which is we have a lot of authority as human beings. Um, we originally got it in Genesis 1 and 2, and even though we lost it in Genesis 3, Jesus, when he came the first time, renewed or restored the authority being given back to us to run this place. And you can see that in Matthew 10 when he sends out the 12 apostles for the first time. And you can see it in Luke chapter 10 when he sends out the 70. 
And I think the language in um, Luke chapter 10, 19 especially, is when he tells the 70, I am giving you authority, now listen to the words here, over all of the power of the enemy. And interesting. So Jesus, through that explanation, is saying, in essence, our authority trumps Satan's residual power. And he went on to explain, you're going to step on scorpions. You're going to step on snakes. And nothing of the enemy will by any means harm you. Well, and then, and what was the report that came back from the 70? They were absolutely amazed that the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. That's the authority that they announced when they took the kingdom out to the demon-infested surroundings. Now think about that. And God is saying, you guys are my representatives. Believers are leaders. We're waiting for someone else to do it. The question is, oh, do you think your pastor is going to uh, visit your neighborhood and go evangelize? You think your pastor is going to show up at um, your next Thanksgiving meal to save all your unsaved relatives? You think your pastor is going to uh, go to your workplace and uh, you know start doing the job of an evangelist, you know, amongst your colleagues at work? Who's supposed to be the kingdom representative in all of these different oikoses? I don't know if that's a word or not, but oikos is your it's the Greek word for your surrounding. Uh, area of influence. And this is why we have to learn these rules of how the kingdom operates. These are principles. They're universal. They work, and they work consistently if, as long as we do our part. So it's very, very important that we learn how this operates. It's really interesting. The demonic understands how it operates, um, let me give you an example. I mean, if you want to see how the demonic reacted when Yeshua showed up, uh, and he's a representative of the Father. The Father has given him his authority, and he says that. All authority has been given to me by the Father. Look at the reaction of the demonic world in the early chapters of Matthew um, when Jesus starts his ministry. They scream out in terror. And they say to him, we know who you are, son of the most high. And then they ask him a question. Have you come before the appointed time to torment us? They know and recognize divine authority when it shows up. And we have that same authority. When Jesus told his apostles, when you go into a house, you speak shalom on that house. Shalom is the Jewish word for peace. That word signifies how God's order and kingdom function, how they operate. So what Jesus was instructing them is say, when you go into a house, when you speak Shalom, if they, if they don't receive it, 
then it'll come your that shalom, that peace will come back on you. But it's not a request. When you go inside the house and you're and you're following directions of from Yeshua directly, you are announcing the arrival of a new government, a spiritual government has just that the same that's in you, indwelling you, you've just crossed the do- threshold of that door and you've gone in and anything that's not of God has to get out of the way, has to depart, has to step aside. And it's not a request. It's an announcement of a new sheriff <laughs> just showed up to that spiritual environment inside that house. Okay? So understand what he was telling them. It was not a nice little, oh, you know, have a wonderful day. It was like, no, you go into a house, and then you're staying there. You make sure that you bring Father God's government in there when you enter into that house. You take it with you. It's ambulatory. It moves. It's dynamic. Wherever you go, the kingdom goes. And so he says, announce it to put everyone, both in the spiritual context and human context, on notice what just happened. That's your job. That's how the kingdom is expanded. That's how the kingdom increases. Okay? And this is, you know, it's, what, did, what did Jesus say? He said, ever since the beginning of John, you know, John the Baptist, he said the kingdom uh, of God is violent men try to take it uh, because it is a, it's a battle. It's a spiritual warfare. And, and we bring the, the ace in the hole, so to speak, that's a game changer. And that is we, have, we bring authority, now, we don't have the power unless and until we obey God. And that's where we're listening to what we call, remember, this is from a few weeks back, the rhema word. That's the Holy Spirit telling you, okay, don't say this right now, or go over to this room, or, um, you know, this conversation right now has to end. Or, you know, you're listening all the time. You're plugged in. You're operating in and as a part of the kingdom. And God is honoring your obedience by releasing great power through the spirit world to show up when you need it. Peter needed somebody to show up and get him out of jail, not just once, but twice. Okay? So so the author um, ponders what the question that David asked, which was in uh, Psalms chapter 8, verse 5. Um and the author says, you know, there's a lot more that could be said about angel, but he says there are two additional factors that we have to look at uh, before moving on. One is the invariably the, the question that occurs at this point is um, concerns Psalms 8, um, chapter 8, verse 5. Excuse me. You have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings or angels. Now, he goes into some length as to the Septuagint's uh, translation of that, of Elohim. Um, But basically, what it comes down to is this. Um, Man is um, inferior to angels 
in this sense. The substance of this inferior, uh, inferiority is stated in Second Peter uh, 2, verse 11. Angels, though, and this is, a, this is straight out of Second Peter chapter 2, 11. Angels, though greater in might and power. Okay, and that's the word dunamis there. And so their power is greater than, than uh, mankind's. But the author goes to point out, angels are greater in power, but not in authority. And this distinction is really important. The distinction is the whole point of both Psalm 8 and the first two chapters of Hebrews. Psalm 8 begins with this question, what is man that you are mindful of him? This is David asking the question to the father. And what astounds David is not that man is hierarchically lower than angels, but the fact that he has been given he, being mankind, has been given dominion or authority over creation, including the angels, in spite of his relative weakness or his inferiority and his limitations. Man is inferior in might and power, yet God has crowned him with glory and honor. We're going to be talking more about this distinction next week as we finish up this chapter of Ministering Spirits. God bless you. I hope you have several simple truth moments this week. Looking forward to seeing you next week. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth.net at gmail.com that's earl simple truth at gmail.com so until next time may god richly reveal his simple truth moments to you you've been listening to simple truth moments join reverend earl clampett for another episode next sunday at 11 a.m right here on k praise